correlation doesn't mean cause and effect. Just because there's a strong correlation doesn't mean if we increase peak force in an isometric mid-thigh pull, you in, will increase you know, your 1RM performance or your, your um, sprint performance. However, there are a few studies out there that do indicate that as your peak force increases, your ability to accelerate increases. Or as force at a specific time point increases, your ability to accelerate during a sprint or a jump, etc., increases. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. If there's one thing I've learned over the last nine years, it's that there's two areas that the audience and practitioners out there want more information on. One is speed training. And two is isometric training and testing. So I've done a little bit around isometric training with Danny Lum, um, Ed Gannon, obviously Alex Natera a couple of times. But one thing we seem to have missed, although we did bring it up with Danny, is isometric testing. And this is where Paul Comfort comes into his own on this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So we have a little chat around the isometric mid-thigh pull around the isometric squat but then also some other options that we've got for isometric testing and then we follow that on how we actually use that data to inform our programming of isometric training and because Paul described isometric training as supplementary to traditional strength training that then brought us onto eccentrics so we had a little chat around eccentrics as well to finish off this conversation so if you're wanting more information isometrics this is the place to go but also check out previous episodes of the podcast with danny lum ed gannon and of course alex natera this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by kitman labs Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at kitmanlabs. And this episode is also sponsored by Satanta College. Led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, Satanta College provides coaches with the opportunity to take their career to the next level with qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science. Satanta's blended learning approach ensures you have flexibility to continue your studies alongside your coaching practice. And lectures are delivered online with practical workshops held in locations across Ireland, the UK, the United States, India and South Africa. Courses are designed by experts in the field of sports science, including Professor Ian Jeffries and Des Ryan, with a focus on practically applying the most current methodologies in your day-to-day coaching. Applications are now open for the MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Psychology, along with a range of strength and conditioning programs from certificate to degree level. Visit stantacollege.com for more information and how to apply. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Paul. 
Paul Comfort, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's been a long time coming, but thank you for making some time in your diary. No problem. Thanks for having, thanks for having me on. You're right. It's, I think we discussed this probably four or five years ago and just never got rain to it. We did. We absolutely did. That seems to be a common theme. Go in, try to arrange it, and then it just rumbles on. But thank you for uh, thank you for coming on. It's, it's uh, massively appreciated. Just want to preface this by saying I'm full of cold. So if I go into some coughing fit, I'll try to mute our mic so it doesn't uh, it doesn't ruin what you're saying, which it won't. So that's that's good. Um, so Paul, just a bit, bit of a brief background on you, really, if if possible. Yeah, no problem. So I'm a reader and strength and conditioning at the University of Salford at the moment. Um, but I started off over 20 years ago, sort of as an academic, um, working at the University of Southampton. Before that, I was a, you would have been classed as a personal trainer back then, but I was working on, at the two extremes of the spectrum. I was either working with athletes that wanted to get better, um, but didn't really know how to do that and how to improve their performance beyond their sport-specific or skill-specific training. Or I was working generally with overweight business people that had a lot of money and were living the wrong lifestyles and, and back to time they'd want to try and lose weight and then they'd regain it, etc. Um, but trying to focus most of it with the athletes, although, you know, especially 20 plus years ago, they didn't necessarily have the money to do that. So that was where it really started. There was no UK Strength and Conditioning Association at that point. There was nothing like that. So it was sort of trying to find um, information from American sources, etc., to really sort of satisfy my curiosity. So it started from there. And then luckily I went to University of Southampton, worked there for a, for a year, and then went on to a college in Southend-on-Sea, working for the University of Essex. Then on to Middlesex University, and then, what would it be, uh, 13 years ago, um, started at the University of Salford. And I've been really lucky that throughout the time in universities, I've, I've been, probably until about four or five years ago, heavily involved in still doing some work with athletes, um, whether it's through the university, whether it's early on it was separate. Later on, it was with the TAS program, the Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme, uh, and those sorts of things. And then when I started at the University of Salford, I think I had about about 30% of my role was actually working with some of the sports teams that we regularly um, sort of liaise with and have partnerships with. Um, that expanded a lot at first, and then I had to try and sort of shrink that down and pass some on to my colleagues for them to do that because uh, it just wasn't time to be doing it across rugby league, rugby union and football, or if you're listening elsewhere, soccer. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much me. I've been trying to combine both the practical side of things and the academic side of things. And the practical side of things is really good, or at least staying in regular contact with people, because it allows me to inform the research based on what practitioners want. And I know that um, Professor Ben Jones has spoken on um, your podcast before about you know joining the two up together and making sure that, that the research is going to be applicable and it's not just lab-based. So that's that's a really important thing. Um, so yeah, I've done sort of worked as a strength and conditioning coach, sports scientist, probably for about 20 years. Um, and then the last five years has been more focused on the, the academic side of it, just with sort of liaising with uh different sports teams, etc. It comes up all the time that people like yourself or even those in very much applied positions in professional and collegiate sport have come through having done personal training. How important has that been throughout your career to have that grounding of, like you say, just hours and hours of coaching, hours and hours of convincing this person to, to, to come back and pay you? I, th I think it is, it's huge. It's having the right communication skills and being able to build the right rapport with people quite quickly as well. Uh, but it is different on an individual level to when you've got a group of athletes and also different than when you've got a group of different athletes. You know, even if you look at rugby league and rugby union, they come from totally different demographics. Um, and then if you look at uh, football, they generally don't want to do much stuff in the weight room. So you've got to get buy-in really quickly. So the ability to communicate and get some relatively complex um, concepts across to them, but in really simple terms initially, it is really, really important. We see that with university students all the time, that those have, that have done some personal training, while their knowledge may be lacking in some areas based on whatever course they've done, you know, they can be a weekend course sometimes, which really isn't going to qualify you. But if they've got the experience of coaching, whether that's as a personal trainer, whether it's as a sport coach, you know, a technical coach, Whatever that is, because they're used to communicating, um, 
they actually pick things up so much better and they can get that information across to people so much uh, in a much more user-friendly way. And it comes across fluid and fluent rather than almost stage. You know, we teach students how to do this and you sort of give them a recipe of this is how you should approach it. And you can see them thinking, you know, almost that tick box approach, but it has to be natural. Otherwise, it just looks forced. So having developed those sort of skills to communicate effectively, whether it's as a personal trainer or as a coach is, is really, really important. But also identifying that, you know, that there is a notable difference between what personal trainers normally do and what strength coaches normally do. There are some some distinctions between them. I always think that for various different reasons, the best thing I did was work in primary schools. And you've got PE lessons, you've got 30 kids, 20 of which probably don't particularly want to do it, five of which are really excited to do it, five of which don't really care. And just to get that, I mean, seven-year-olds, if you can control a class of seven-year-olds to to do something relatively structured, enjoy it, you're probably doing all right and you'll probably be fine when you've got a group of 18-year-olds. Um, so yeah, that, for me, that was the one of the best things that I did, just able to communicate, get things moving quickly, get them engaged and um, yeah, produce something at the end of it in a controlled and safe Yeah, definitely it's, it's, a, it's a big thing that, you know, we try and emphasize to our students from, the, you know, the first day they turn up, go out and get experience coaching, doing other stuff. Yes, you may need to work in a bar or whatever to earn some money as a student, but go out and get some relevant experience, which will develop those skills. Unfortunately, as with every university, those students ignore that for the first two years, get to the third year and start panicking. They've got no experience in the areas when they're looking what you re- is required to get a job or even get an interview for a job. But, you know, some of them do go out there and do it. And the, the the students that I've seen certainly over the last 13 years at the University of Salford have done that from day one and gone over and above with things like placement hours, etc. in their final year. They're the ones that get the jobs at the end of it and they're the ones you can see them develop that, that ability um, and the, their ability to communicate. Because I think sometimes if you've been through a university education, you forget how much you've learned and you forget all the technical terms you're using because everyone you're around is using them. And then you say something to an athlete of any age and sometimes you just get a blank look and think, Okay, that didn't work, and it's being able to realise that they just didn't didn't understand at all what you've just said. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's definitely a really important skill for people to develop, and and you continually develop that over time. You know, even watching other people coach or train an individual and see how they cue them and they cue them in a different way, and think, oh, brilliant! I'm stealing that. I'm using that next time. Yeah, hundred percent. So I give you a little bit of an insight into the the podcast and what we're doing on Sportsmith and what's kind of landing at the minute. In terms of topics, one yep. thing in particular is isometric testing and training, which is why I want to speak to you. And if you can, if we combine, not what they're going to do today, but if you combine it with speed, wowzer, it's it's off the charts. People love speed, people love isometrics. So why do you think, in terms of the isometric space, why do you think there's been such a resurgence in the last couple of years of interest? Well, I think you can sort of look at it from two perspectives. One is the isometric assessments. And now force plates are so much more available than they were. They're so much cheaper to conduct those isometric assessments. And obviously you've got um, strain gauges, etc., that you can use for it as well. Um, but it means that that equipment is much more accessible. If you go into the majority of sports teams that I can think of, I think in fact all of the ones um, at the higher levels that we work with um, through the university or that I consult with separately, they've all got force plates. And actually... A lot of them invite you in not to discuss the training aspects, but right, we're collecting all this data. We've got X number of metrics coming out. What the hell do they all mean? Which do I need to use? Because I want to try and inform my practice on a daily basis. But if I've got 100 plus variables, which ones do I choose? So how do I rationalize that? So I think that's one reason that the testing has become far more popular. And there's it's been used more in the research. And obviously, as people read more research, then they start thinking, maybe I should use this method of isometric testing. And then with the isometric training, I think there's a few things. You know, Alex Natera has done a fantastic job of making this um, popular and some of the easier inf- the information easily accessible. Um, Danny Lum more recently as well. But actually, there's still that culture of avoiding heavy lifting, um, which is a problem in itself. Uh, but at least if you have a you know a strength type stimulus during isometric training, it's better than nothing. Um, it should, in my opinion, it should be used in addition to that sort of normal traditional training and still make sure you get progressive overload. But it definitely makes it more attractive in some situations and especially 
if you can try and use it for maintenance of strength during periods of fixture congestion. Um, you know, maybe you can just about give enough stimulus so they don't start, the athletes don't start to detrain over a short period of time. Um, so I think, you know, they're probably the, the two main things. It's become more popular in terms of um, people promoting it on social media, etc. And it's, a, it's something which people don't fear like they do with heavy lifting. And there is still that culture in a whole range of different sports. Um, and then the testing side, I think it's just the fact that, you know, false plates are so much more accessible now. We'll dive into the isometric training a little bit later on, so I'll definitely come back to that. I've made a note around using isometrics in, in uh, periods of heavy fixture congestion because I think that will probably resonate with a lot of people. But in terms of the testing, so you mentioned force plates, hundreds and hundreds of metrics that are going to pop out. How do we distill that and understand what we need to use, what we want to use in our specific settings? What would be your process to try to understand that and get to the right end point? With that, certainly with the isometric testing, it's relatively straightforward from, from my point of view. Um, and, you know, people can disagree with me, but, you know, you need to know their maximum force production capability. We need to know what the highest force is that that individual can generate. Um, so we need peak force. And ideally, you need relative peak force. We need to be able to scale that and divide that by their body weight to make sure that it's um, takes body mass into account. What we don't want to have, especially with youth athletes, you really don't want athletes, as they're developing, we're going, oh yeah, they're getting stronger. And you can see this in all the research where people have assessed um, force production capability in youth soccer players or youth football players, that they get stronger with age. Well, of course they do. They're getting bigger, they're getting heavier. Ratio scale it, divide it by body weight, and it's very, very rare you find anything in the literature in youth athletes that they get stronger which for me is a massive problem because that tells me actually your strength training programs probably haven't done anything. They've just maintained and allowed them to continue their ability to generate force relative to their mass. If they didn't do that training, maybe they would actually be relatively weaker. Um, we don't know. Uh, but it tells me that the strength training practices are far from optimal or far from ideal because they should be getting much stronger. And you can see that if you look at some of the work that Dan Baker has published in the past where he's looked at people over a 10-year period. And you might not only have small increases in strength, it wasn't isometric strength, but only small increases in strength per year. But let's say, for example, you put 10 kilos on your back squat every year for five years. That's a pretty impressive back squat. Put five kilos in body mass on um, every year for five years, you're going to look like a different person. You know, you're going to look pr pretty impressive physically. Um, but your increase in strength is outweighed your increase in mass. So that's a positive adaptation. You know, that's great. So we need those increases in peak force um, and we know that there's a strong relationship between peak isometric force and rapid force development or rate of force development. So it's definitely important to push that ceiling up um, and then the other thing we need to look at is rapid force production. So how much force we can produce in certain time periods. So then you're looking at you know anything from 50 milliseconds up to maybe 250 milliseconds. And you can either just use force at those specific time points, so force at 150, 200, 250 milliseconds, or you can calculate rate of force development. The only issue you have with rate of force development, because you're running additional calculations, you can introduce additional error to that. And there are loads of different ways of calculating rate of force development. It, you know, it is force divided by time, but is it from the onset of your force production to the peak? Is it from 100 milliseconds to 150? Is it the average across that time? Is it the peak? Um, there's a really good um, study by Professor Greg Half published back in 2015 where he's looked at a whole range of different methods and recommends using um, a 20-second moving average window across the time point, so 0 to 150, 0 to 250, etc., uh, but not all software packages do that for you. So from my point of view, rather than having to try and unpick exactly what your software package does or try and set up an Excel spreadsheet, which will look at the average across a moving average window of 20 milliseconds within 250 milliseconds, which even saying that sounds complex. If you just look at force at 100, 200, 250, whatever time points, if force is increased at that point, your rate of force development at that time point must have increased over that duration because it goes up as almost a straight line. Um, it's not like when we look at more dynamic tasks where you know that, that 
uh, force time curve can fluctuate. So if you just then look at force at specific time points, the other thing we can then do is identify if you've got an increase in strength, has your rate, has your force production at certain time points increased in proportion to that? So if you look at the force at, let's say, 250 milliseconds as a percentage of your peak force, how much of your peak force can you express in 250 milliseconds? If it's currently 75% and we do a more plyometric, ballistic type of training and you find that goes up to 85%, brilliant. That's probably the, the desired adaptation you wanted. If we do maximum strength training and you find that that force at 250 milliseconds drops from 75% down to 60%, we then need to take into account both what that peak force has gone up to and what your force at 250 milliseconds is. Because if your force at 250 is still increased, that's fantastic. And that can still increase, but it's just not to the same magnitude as your peak force. In which case, then, that tells us our max strength training was really effective. We haven't suffered issues in terms of the ability to produce force rapidly, which some people worry about. That's normally when you have a really high volume of training, but you would know that was about to happen because you'd plan to increase volume over time. Um, and then what we look at is if that force is now 65, 60, 65% and it was 75%, well, the, the force at 250 was 60, 75% of your peak force. Now it's 65%. We've got to focus on the ability to express that force rapidly. And as I said earlier, your maximum force generating capacity does have a strong relationship to your ability to produce force rapidly, but only if you're not fatigued at that point. So if you've done a high volume of training, you need to back off a little bit. So that might tell us we need to focus on the more ballistic and plyometric training, not completely ex exclude heavy resistance training, but focus more on the ballistic and plyometric to shift that percentage up. So sometimes what we've got to do is move that percentage, the ability to express force rapidly has got to move up in terms of the percentage of peak force you can generate. Other times, if you're up at 85% of your peak force being expressed in 250 milliseconds, your athlete's you know, ability to express that force in ballistic dynamic tasks is fantastic. And actually just chasing after that extra few percent, you're not going to get anything. You've, you've probably hit a threshold. Now, I don't know what that exact threshold is, so don't take me on 85% and I've got to get there. But if you find that that's not improving dramatically, then you need to increase that ceiling. You need to increase your threshold. You need to get that maximum force production capability up. And as to give two examples, I've regularly seen when people have done sort of um, this type of testing with football players, that their ability to express force rapidly is good because of the nature of the sport and the type of training they do. But their ability to express a maximum force that we would consider to be high is pretty poor. So they need to emphasize more strength development in most cases, not all, but in most. Whereas if you look at rugby players, it tends to be more of the reverse, especially with rugby union forwards. Their peak force is phenomenal. Their ability to express it rapidly is not as good as it could be. But actually, if they're your front row forwards and they're always in scrums, rucks, moors and they're a wrecking ball, <clears throat> they probably don't need to express that force quite as quickly as some of the backs would do. So you've also got to get the context on this. What do we really need from our athlete? And sometimes go back to the coach and say, how are you going to play this athlete? You know, are they just going to be that, you know, destructive person on the pitch, but they never run more than 20 meters. So their contact times are still relatively long compared to if you get to top speed. So I think the key thing is if we go with peak force relative to body weight, and if we also express their force at different time points, probably 150, 200, 250 milliseconds, look at those alone, but also look at those as a percentage of your peak force and see how they change over the time. That's giving you a really holistic picture from one test. But at the same time, the, those values and those variables will change depending on the test you do. So if you do an isometric squat, the forces are consistently higher than you get from an isometric mid-thigh pull. Um, so you need to, to bear that in mind. Some people don't like the isometric squat because of the compression um, when you're trying to push rapidly. So with some individuals, it, there's a lot of familiarization then required. You get the same with people with the isometric mid-thigh pull because the lifting straps, which you must use, otherwise grip strength will mean that you 
don't get a maximum force production, you don't get maximum force at specific time points, so you have to use lifting straps. If they're not used to lifting straps and they're digging to, into their wrists, that pain creates inhibition. They won't push as hard and fast as they can. Um, so that in itself is a, a bit of an issue. And then if you look at most of the research that's been done so far, it's just looking at your, you know, push as hard and fast as you can. But we can improve the reliability of the rapid force development um, if we adopt the strategy that's done with single joint isometrics, where you tell them to kick out as hard, as, uh, as fast as possible, to be explosive, to be ballistic. Now, that might seem strange. And I am a bit of a stickler for using the correct terminology and the semantics that it can't be explosive, it can't be ballistic, it's isometric. But that's your cue to the athlete. So they know they're aiming to explode. Nothing explodes, we know that. But they're aiming to be explosive, they'll understand that term. So you can actually do two different protocols. And David Drake's uh, published this um, a few years ago on the isometric squat. And Stuart Guppy, one of Greg Haft's PhD students, has just had something accepted in... I can't remember now whether it's um, sports biomechanics or journal of strength and conditioning research. It's one of them, which will be out soon. At you, looking at the isometric mid-five pull, whereas David Drake looked at the isometric squat. And if you use that approach, so you do sort of an, an impulsive effort, an explosive effort of only one second, you get much higher rates of force development, much higher forces at different time points. And it dramatically improves the reliability of those rapid force production capabilities. But your peak force comes down because you're only pushing explosively for one second. Your focus is fast force production, not maximum force production. So in that situation, you probably need to do your three to five maximum efforts for peak force. So sort of four to five second efforts. And if you can see the force trace on the screen and it starts to come down, let them stop at that point. They're not going to get any higher. They've already started to fatigue. Do those three to five trials, and then at the end of that, get them to do some one-second efforts to get that rapid force production. One-second effort, 30 seconds to a minute rest, and repeat. It adds two or three minutes onto your testing, but you'll get much better data out of that in terms of your rapid force production. Now, a word of caution with that, though. There's minimal data out there published on those forces at different time points or rate of force development using that explosive, ballistic or impulsive protocol. So you can't then compare that to the most of the other published literature. But if you're a practitioner using this to monitor your athlete's performance, it's a more stable measure when you use that, that sort of ballistic or explosive approach. Would the time points that we're interested in differ based on the type of athlete that we've got or the type of sport that we're working in, or would that be pretty consistent? I'd say for most people, probably stick pretty consistent with that, you know, 150, 200, 250 milliseconds. But there are some examples when you might want to increase or decrease that. And if you're looking at the, the shorter time points, you know, 100, and, 100 milliseconds and 50 milliseconds, the only issue with that is sometimes the data isn't reliable. So for practitioners, if they're going to do that, they need to try and establish reliability between sessions because we're not worried about a change in a session. We're looking at a change between sessions. So if they come in fresh on a Monday morning, establish the reliability of your athletes performing the test in exactly the same way while they're fresh, ideally pre-season. So you haven't got a game at some point over the weekend so you can figure out what your measurement error is. And if that's large, you know, if you're getting a, a measurement error of greater than sort of 10, 15%, it falls at 50 and 100 milliseconds, scrap it, don't bother. Um, because it's not going to tell you anything. And then go with those longer time points. Sometimes you might want to go with a um, longer durations, longer than 250 milliseconds, depending on the sport. Um, if you have longer contact times, if you're really interested in, you know, your initial few strides starting to accelerate, or if you're looking at other sports where maybe they have longer contact times involved, that might be important. But actually, if you're using 150, 200, 250, we know that that's a pretty much a linear increase. It's less stable at the bottom. It's got a bit of a curve to it, which is why that 50 and 150 milliseconds can be problematic with the reliability. But beyond 250, it pretty much just keeps going up at the same angle it was before. So if your force at 250 milliseconds is increased at 300, 350, that probably has increased. So um, without wanting to introduce a lot of extra variables, um, it's probably easiest to stick most of the time um, with that 100, 150, 
150, 200, 250 millisecond sort of frame because they come out as the most reliable as well. If there's practitioners out there who haven't got access to force plates, which there are many, what other options have we got? What other options have they got? Well, you've got a couple of options. One is try and get access. That doesn't necessarily mean buy the equipment. Contact your local university if they if you know they've got a decent sports science department there and see if you can either go in and do the testing or if they've got portable force plates, they can come out and assist you. Most universities will be willing to collaborate with you because it will give them data. It gives it makes their staff more credible. And you can also give great opportunities for the students to be part of that testing um, for them to gain additional experience. And the amount of jobs out there at the moment where people require um the applicant to have an understanding of how to use that equipment, that's essential. Um, so that's one way you can get access. The other thing you can do is there's quite a few strain gauges on the market, um, which you can purchase relatively cheap. Um, probably not quite as reliable because you can get additional movement, um, sort of, you know, anterior, posterior, medial, lateral, um, and it's not quite as stable as what you, what you get when you set up an isometric mid-thigh pull normally. But you can do that, and Lachlan James has published a, a paper on the reliability of using a strain gauge instead. And I think Anthony Turner and um, maybe Chris Bishop down at Middlesex University have published something similar as well. So it, you, you can get reliable force data out of it. The biggest issue is if you're looking at force at different time points, is trying to really understand um, what sampling frequency is required. So if you're looking at, if you were looking, just to make the maths easy, if you had a, a, a strain gauge which only samples at 100 hertz and you're looking at force at 100 milliseconds, you're going to get 10 samples. You're going to miss a load of information. So unless you've got a sampling frequency of 1000 hertz, you're probably not going to be able to look at that rapid force production capability uh, with anywhere near as much reliability. But that's the same with a force plate. Ideally, you want force plates where you can sample at 1000 hertz um, for assessing these out isometric variables when you're looking at those shorter time points what are your thoughts on using things like strain gauges in more sport specific positions well it depends what you mean about sport specific <laughs> positions i'm just thinking i'm just <laughs> thinking of like a um for potential for, for sprinting mechanics looking at the, the horizontal on two boxes and looking at looking at the, the strength in that, them kind of positions yeah well you've, you've got a couple of different things if you're looking at um single joint isometric type testing with a strain gauge, really reliable. And actually, when you look at the huge amount of research that's been done in that area, as long as you standardize everything about their position in their posture and everything else is fixed. So it really is then, you know, if you're looking at knee extension, it really is just a quads, nothing else can contribute. That's really reliable. That's great. If you're looking at trying to get, you know, multi-joint in a sports specific type task, because your posture and your position will vary, um, it tends to be very, very variable. The other issue is, if you find that somebody's not producing a huge amount of force, then you've got to try and figure out why. And if it is a multi-joint, whole body type movement, you know, if it's th something through the upper body, um, are you looking at how, the, how effectively they apply force to the ground, how effectively they transfer that through the trunk, how it comes through the shoulder joint to, you know. So as soon as you start trying to go too sport specific, we actually generally make the testing methods so unreliable that it's not really telling us anything. Or, even if we can get them reliable, we don't know where the weak link is. We just know, actually, there's a deficit here. And then we'd have to scratch our heads and think, well, how do we find out what the problem is within this? So the standard sort of testing with multi-joint, which relates back to performance and athletic tasks, is probably your best place to start. If there is an issue with your athlete, they've been injured, they keep picking up injuries, you probably need to go to the single joint stuff to evaluate that and, and identify if there are any discrepancies between limbs or between agonists and antagonists. Um, but the really sport-specific stuff starts getting a bit tricky unless you can actually, you know, if you're looking at somebody's ability, if you're looking at baseball and, you know, the upper body contribution for batting, um, as long as you can fix the, the lower body, brilliant. Um, and if you're then looking at the lower body contribution, then it starts getting really tricky. So, you know, if you start trying to look through the entire um, kinetic chain, then we get to all, sort, all sorts of issues. And that's whether it's a strain gauge or, you know, most isokinetic devices will have a, a weird and wonderful array of attachments, golf handles, baseball bat handles, 
um, all these sorts of things. But from my experience, because there are limited standardized protocols for them and it varies dramatically between people testing, you just don't end up with any reliable results when you try and go sport specific with it. Um, for that, you probably need to wait until, while some of them are good, motionless marker cap markerless motion capture systems um, to do your 3D motion capture when you can then model exactly what's happening in, in detail. That's far beyond my understanding of exactly how, how you use them. Um, but that's certainly an area that people can look at if they want to go really sport specific because then you're not constrained with your movement patterns or being in a lab environment. If you've got a good markerless motion capture system, you can really evaluate the quality of movement and potentially then approximate the forces that are being generated, etc. So we're just going to take a little break in the chat with Paul. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we translate that isometric testing into an isometric training environment and then finish off our chat with some chats around eccentrics. So a top quality part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. And this episode is also sponsored by Blackbox Fitness. Blackbox Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. Blackbox are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Blackbox manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. If you want to learn more about Blackbox, check out their website blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at Blackbox Fitness. And now back to the episode with Paul. Just trying to make this transition over into the isometric training side of things. And I probably should have mentioned this at the start, actually. What are the, what are the links to dynamic performance between uh, when doing isometric testing? How does that how does that link? How is that link made? Yeah. So if, if you look at something like um, the isometric mid-thigh pull or the isometric squat, there's a huge number of studies out there that show strong correlations between your ability to produce very high forces, so the peak force or peak force relative to mass, and performance in other dynamic strength tests or tasks. So 1RM squat, 1RM deadlift, snatch, power snatch, clean, power clean, jerk performance, etc. And in weightlifters, they're almost perfect correlations which isn't surprising because they're so used to getting into those positions for the isometric mid-thigh pull. But even if we look at how they relate to things like sprint performance, jump performance, there are still strong correlations there. Now, correlation doesn't mean cause and effect. Just because there's a strong correlation doesn't mean if we increase peak force in an isometric mid-thigh pull, you will increase you know, your 1RM performance or your, your um, sprint performance. However, there are a few studies out there that do indicate that as your peak force increases, your ability to accelerate increases. Or as force at a specific time point increases, your ability to accelerate during a sprint or a jump, etc., increases. Now that makes sense if we go back to you know your basic biomechanics, because we know that it's your relative net impulse, with impulse being force times time, um, and relative dividing it by your body mass. So as long as your body mass stays the same, if you can increase the amount of force you produce in the same given time point, your ability to accelerate will have increased. Now, we evaluate it in an isometric task. Then we've got to hope that the athlete can actually use that force 
and still produce a higher force in the same time frame when they perform their dynamic task. But if you've got the right balance between what you're doing in the weight room and then their skill-specific training, the sprint drills you might do, the jump training, the bounding in plyometrics, if you've got the right balance there, you should get that transference. You know, no amount of work in the weight room will immediately transfer to a really highly skilled task. But even just, you know, on observation, if you get somebody much stronger and their peak force goes up and then their force at 150 milliseconds goes up, their ability to accelerate when they're sprinting, jumping does start to improve. There is sometimes a lag time. So the problem with some of the research is that you do a four week or a six week block of training, you get to the end of that block and you retest them. Well, actually, if you've had a, a progress, if you've used progressive overload, which we should all be doing, you've had a progressive increase in possibly load or intensity, definitely in volume, and therefore we've added fatigue across that few weeks of training, whether it's four or six weeks. And you look at some studies, there's not an unloading week, there's not a deload week, but that's what we do when we train people normally. You have an accumulation of fatigue during that three, four, five, six week buildup. And then we have a week where we back off, we deload, we taper, whatever term you want to use for it, then re retest them when fatigue is dissipated. And the reason I mention that is if you look at a lot of um, Dr. Andy Fry's early work on um, overreaching, overtraining, they really battered people. Some of their training programs, you look at them and think, how the hell did people get through that? And you find that um, peak force or their maximum strength is pretty stable. It doesn't decrease dramatically. You can push people really hard and maximum force production doesn't go down. But their ability to produce force rapidly decreases. So if we've sort of had that approach, far more subtle than what's been done in some of those overtraining and overreaching studies, but we've got a similar approach. We've got a progressive increase in volume. If we then test them right at the end of that block, it's not surprising you're going to see a slight decrease in their ability to produce force rapidly because they're fatigued. So we need that appropriate deload or taper before we retest. And that it doesn't always happen within the research. Um, partly due to time constraints, partly due to then getting the athletes to actually take a bit of time off, and sometimes because people just don't know any better, which is problematic in itself. Um, so, you know, there is that strong correlation, but it all comes down to your ability to produce force, high forces in a short duration, which is why it's so important to have that, if we're doing isometric testing, to really try and quantify how much force they can produce in a certain time point, because that will indicate that they can generate a greater impulse and therefore if they can apply that greater impulse during sport-specific tasks, we will get greater acceleration, whether that's of their mass or whether that's of an object they're throwing or, or whatever it might be. Cool. Some amazing stuff in there. So thank you very much, Paul. Appreciate that. Um, transitioning to the isometric training side. So as you said right at the start, this is a, a complementary um, method of training to, to your traditional um, strength training. But just taking it back again, what are the benefits of isometric training and what what does it plug? What what areas does it plug that traditional strength training maybe doesn't? Well, I think what, one of the things that's really useful is it's, it's minimally fatiguing. So because you're actually not moving through a large range of motion and you can easily control the duration of each, each isometric muscle action. Um, you can minimize fatigue. It doesn't have the eccentric component in there, which we get with traditional strength training, which while really beneficial, actually, if, it, if you're using an unfamiliar task, may cause muscle damage, um, may cause DOMS, pain inhibition. And that's one of the concerns with athletes when you introduce a new stimulus is if they come back in a day or two later complaining to the medical staff that, you know, they're really sore. Some of them, if they're not used to that type of training, will be saying they've pulled the hamstring, they've pulled the groin, or what. No, you're just sore because you don't train hard enough. That's what happens most of the time. It's unlikely they'll, they'll have pulled something in a, you know, in a structured weight training program or resistance training program if you've been appropriately progressive in nature. Um, so it's not as fatiguing as the dynamic strength training. You can produce much higher forces during an isometric muscle action. If you're going for you know, maximum force production, then you can during a dynamic muscle action. Um, you know, so going through your concept, traditional eccentric, concentric repetitions you do with, with standard resistance training. And then the other benefit is everyone has sticking points during certain exercises. 
you know, you start trying to do a, a squat, a deadlift. If you fail, there's always a specific point you'll fail at. Normally somewhere midpoint through the range of motion, depending on where your weakness is. So you can train people in those weak positions and that can help them get through those sticking points. Um, and you can do that without adding a huge amount of extra volume. But as, as I mentioned earlier, and as you've just restated, it isn't a substitute for your standard resistance training. Otherwise, you'd have to train at so many different joint angles to get that transference throughout that full range of motion that you'd end up with all sorts of issues in terms of, well, you know, I've been trying to do an isometric squat. It's taken me an hour to get all these different positions for enough repetitions with enough force. Well, that was really, you know, counterproductive because I could have done that just with a few sets of squats in, you know, doing a dynamic squatting type task. So, you know, there are there are some benefits, but you've also got to take a step back and think, what do I really need from this? What does the research say around the, that transference of specific positions? So if I'm training at a particular degree, how what what's the transference either side of that? Well, a lot of the early research seems to indicate that you're looking at sort of plus or minus 15 degrees um, from the joint angle you were training at. Um, and that seems to be correct if you're just doing isometric training. Some of the more recent studies that have been published seem to show a slightly greater range, but that is when they're combined with dynamic heavy strength training. So that probably helps with that transference because you're still doing other training. And that's the problem you get sometimes with, you know, we've got to do really well controlled studies in very controlled environments so that we know that whatever our intervention is, is what's had the effect. But then we also have to do those studies where they're more ecologically valid. They are what we would do in an applied environment. So they are what we're going to do with our, you know, with our football team, with our rugby team, with, you know, whatever that sport is. And then that's when we seem to find that either what, what was done in that controlled lab environment doesn't work or it doesn't work as well. Or sometimes, oh my God, this works much better because it's in addition to other types of training. Some of the early studies on isometric training showed an increase in rate of force development, but a decrease in jump performance. Well, how does that work? You would assume that if your rate of force development increases, your jump performance should increase. But actually, they were assessing rate of force development during a single joint isometric task and then comparing that to jump performance where you've been training at zero velocity for the last six weeks. So, and your jump height is determined by your velocity at takeoff and you're used to training at zero velocity. So is that really surprising when we think about specificity of training that your jump height decreased? No, it's probably not. But again, look at the studies where it's combined as an addition to or an adjunct to your normal training. And we tend to get beneficial adaptations. And, you know, it's not just about the performance side of things. There's a lot of research showing the benefits for isometric type training um, as an analgesic. If you've got tendon pain before, um, before training and competition, actually to create adaptations in your tendons to make them stiffer, to increase the amount of collagen, etc. Um, so they're more resilient to, um, to stress, strain and therefore injury. However, bear in mind a tendon doesn't know what type of muscle action is going on. It's just got stress and strain applied to it. So, the, But the benefit is it's very, very controlled when it's isometric. And if somebody has, has got a bit of pain, you can ramp that up progressively. Um, whereas it's not quite the same if you suddenly throw them into a, a plyometric task. Yeah, Keith Barr came on the podcast, I don't know how long ago, 18 months ago, maybe. Maybe a little bit longer. Time has, time has stood still and been weird over the last few years. I'm not quite sure when. People came on when, but yeah, his his podcast was uh, very well received um, all around the tendon, so that was pretty cool. But in terms of the manipulating the variables when it comes to isometric training and potential recommendations for what maybe suggesting the research as well, what how can we manipulate isometric to get what we want? And if there's any recommendations out there, that would be great. If you look across the research, it's pretty varied. I don't think there is a true consensus because they tend to be, the studies are set up to get different results. You know, some are that tendon related side of things, some are for performance. I think from, you know, if you think about it practically, if you identify where someone's weak point is, that point that they slow down, you know, unintentionally during an exercise. So if you're going to use an isometric squat to supplement your your um, dynamic squat training. Um, find where that sticking point is. Find the point that they're really having to grind through. And you don't need to assess velocity of the movement. 
that point with a heavy load where they really start struggling. We can all see that. They can tell you that posture. They know it because they thought they were going to fail at that point. Um, <clears throat> that's the point that their face goes purple as well. So it's really easy to spot. So actually doing some repetitions, um, not necessarily for a prolonged duration because you still want a really high effort. And again, the problem is if we do a really prolonged duration and a near maximal effort, we will induce fatigue. So if you're looking at you know your three to five second efforts, we know that you should be able to achieve peak isometric force in under two seconds. And from looking at all the force time data that I've collected with isometric squats and mid-thigh pulls, within five seconds, everyone's force production starts to go down. So if you're looking at a three to five second effort, um, near maximum, uh, I personally find that to be the, one of the most effective ways of getting people to get through sticking points. And we also want to train our athletes to express force rapidly. So actually doing really prolonged holds may be great for rehabilitation purposes. And if somebody's had a niggling injury and that's continued, that might be really, really beneficial. But from a performance point of view, uh, doing a you know three to five repetitions, three to five seconds per effort. And if you can assess that with a strain gauge or with a force plate setup, that will give you some additional feedback. You can tell if they're working hard or not, though. You know, watch athletes face. Are they holding their breath? Are they gasping for breath when they finished a repetition? Are they shaking during the task? Most people will. So you can see most of that without the strain gauge or without um, an isometric mid-thigh pull. But actually, if you've got the force plate to do this type of testing during their training, um, you can also get people really competitive. So if you and I were training, we can both, if we're sort of a similar stature, we can both get onto you know, a force plate, do an isometric squat, I do a five second effort, step away, you do a five second effort and we compete against each other. You're really gonna get maximal buy-in and maximal intent with that then. And you might not need to do it with your whole squad. There may be some athletes you think, right, this will be really useful for them. Um, and, a, and again, a good way of sort of, you know, judging those joint angles based on where you perceive their weaknesses to be. Um, and that's easy during some of those um, dynamic strength exercises. You, you'll really see that. There's only one, one winner in that competition, Paul, and it's certainly not me. <laughs> I'm just conscious that we'll do it based on body weight so don't worry <laughs> I'm just conscious that we've talked about like you say supplementary isometrics being supplementary and not to miss out eccentrics which is what you've you've mentioned as well so where does eccentric focus training fit into the into this and what are the benefits that we can we can gain from from eccentric training so with with the eccentric we can again get really really high forces being produced uh, we've got to produce those. E we've got to implement that eccentric load appropriately, though, and I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. We know that you know if you've got a high eccentric load, which is greater than your the load during a concentric task, um, that we can increase fascicle lengths. And if we can increase muscle fascicle lengths, we increase the potential for those fascicles to shorten at a higher velocity. So I'll try not to go off topic here, but if you look at the force velocity um, relationship. <clears throat> the majority of people get that wrong. And I'll hold my hands up. I've probably made that worse with some figures I've put in publications, textbooks, etc. But the force velocity relationship, relationship comes from fascicle shortening velocity and individual fascicles and the amount of force they can generate. It's not movement velocity, which is how most people interpret it. So it's how quickly your fascicles can sh shorten. Now, if your fascicles shorten more rapidly because they're longer and you've got the optimal pination angle for that, you will undoubtedly get a higher movement velocity from those individuals. But <clears throat> this type, the eccentric training increases fascicle length um, because you're getting the muscles being stretched while it's producing a high force. And that's the key. You need a high force. So you can do tempo eccentric training. We can get people lowering down, lowering down over a prolonged period of time. That increases time under tension. That may create a hypertrophic stimulus where we get more muscle mass. It's not truly eccentric training. You're moving at a really low velocity. Now, don't get me wrong. If you look at that normal force velocity curve, when you see the eccentrics, the eccentric, you get a higher force at a higher velocity. That doesn't happen if you're squatting and you put extra weight on the bar. If you want to move at a high velocity, you relax and gravity accelerates you down. You can't move any quicker than just relaxing and letting gravity push you to the floor. With safety bars and stuff like that in your power rack, obviously, you don't want to get squashed or crush your athlete. So the key thing is, if you're trying to apply really high force or using a higher load, the eccentrics 
in that situation where multi-joint need to be slow and controlled. If we're using an isokinetic dynamometer, that force velocity curve still holds true because we have to apply more force. So if I'm sat on an isokinetic dynamometer, I've got my ankle attached and I'm trying to resist knee extension. So my hamstrings are being lengthened no matter you know, how hard I resist. I basically put in a maximal, maximal isometric effort and I keep pulling my heel back towards, back towards me as hard as I can. But the isokinetic dynamometer will, will apply a force to move it at a certain angular velocity. To move it at a higher angular velocity, I need to apply more force. Exactly the same as me trying to accelerate. If I want to accelerate more effectively, I need to apply more force in a given time. So if you want to increase how fast my knee extends during um, an, iso an eccentric action on an isokinetic dynamometer, more force has to be applied to get me to move at a higher velocity. That isn't the same if um, you're doing normal eccentric training. So we can get those increases in fascicle length. That will increase our potential for um, fascicle shortening velocity and therefore increase our potential for power. If we go back quickly to what I mentioned about the isokinetic dynamometer, it's really easy to try. If you've got a Nord board or a hamstring solo or any type of device like that, get on there and fall to the floor without applying much force. So you move at a high angular velocity. The strain gauges will read minimal force. Resist it as hard as you can, all the way through the motion, the force goes up. So doing a high velocity Nordic, as an example, will give you minimal force. If it, or ideally, if you want to go as fast as possible, you just fall to the floor, there'll be no force. Um, that's not what we're after. And that's exactly the same if we do, you know, increase the load on a barbell. Um, and we squat with it or we do whatever whatever the task might be um, but squatting be an easy one personally if I'm doing it and I'm trying to use an eccentric overload I'll do a front squat because it's so easy to drop the bar rather than a back squat you've got to be good at jumping out from under that bar if you start to move too fast um, or have it set up inside a, a rack with the safety bars set just around your minimum um, squat your maximum squat depth the minimum height you're going to achieve um, but they're really, really beneficial. But again, as an addition to your normal training. Now, if you've got no equipment, and I'll just stick with a squat as an example, because it's probably the easiest one. If we want to create eccentric overload, go above your one RM, set those safety pins um, at about the, your maximum squat depth and do a very slow controlled squat. Probably going to take three to five seconds to get down there. If you think about when you're going for a one RM anyway, you squat down slowly you don't go down rapidly because you're going to get squashed. So you go down slow. If you've gone 10% above that, you'll go down slower. The only problem is then you need a couple of strong people to lift that bar back up or you need to unload it and then lift it back up. So it's not always practical. Um, there are some commercial devices on the market where you can do that and it'll winch it back up for you, but most people won't have those. The other option is to use um, weight releases, the J hooks that hang on the end of the bar, you can put weight on it, you get to the floor, they've got an angle on them so they'll actually flip off when you get to the bottom. Just make sure you set the height of those weight releases, you know, five to eight centimeters um, longer than your you need so that when you get to the bottom of your squat or whatever lift you're doing, that they do release. And make sure you're symmetrical when you squat down because if one comes off one side and not the other, you're in a in whole trouble. world hurt there. So practice it with the warm-up weights and slowly build up. And you've got a whole range of things you can do with that. You can do it to almost try and potentiate um, or enhance your propulsive phase. So you could put 80% of your 1RM on the bar, 30% of your <coughs> um, concentric or your traditional 1RM on the weight releases. So you've got 110% of 1RM. Squat down, they'll release, and then you come up as explosively or fast as you can. Um, you can use it for hypertrophy as well. Um, so we get that increased time under tension on the way down. And we can use it for um, actually just getting that higher eccentric stimulus. As long as you squat, you get back to the top and then two people hook the weights back on for you. Um, that, the nice thing is with that, you can end up doing that as a cluster set. Um, so you can re-rack the bar, somebody put the weights on, you then pick the bar back up, step back, squat again. It takes a little bit longer, but actually you do less volume if you're doing that high load eccentric type training um, because it does create some muscle damage. Now, the other thing to bear in mind with this is that muscle damage is not a bad thing because it gives you the repeated bite effect. 
And it's it do, it's not just from eccentric training. You get that just from a novel stimulus. So if you've been focusing on bilateral training, front squat, back squats, deadlifts, and you suddenly throw in a load of split squats, lunges, um, rear foot elevated split squats, you ache in different places the next day. You'll feel it more in your glutes and your groin, etc., because you're stabilizing. That's not because it was a much higher load. It might have been a lower load overall. If you work out the, the total load lifted, it might be a lower volume, but it's a novel stimulus. So when you introduce a novel stimulus, whether eccentric um, or whether just going from bilateral dominant to unilateral, um, ideally build it in progressively because you will get a little bit sore. But that initial bout um, of, especially if it's eccentric training, protect, protects you against some of that muscle damage and the soreness and the inhibition during the subsequent bite. So your first bite, do a really low volume. If you're doing it with squats, maybe you know do it on your first repetition of a squat with weight releases. So if you're training at 80% of 1RM, you put that extra 30% on. So you, you lower 110% of your 1RM. Do it for one rep, your first rep of a set. And do it on the first rep of maybe the three or four sets. That is likely to give you a protective effect. Next time, you can do it within the set. You know, you can cluster your set. If you're doing sets of six, rep one as the weight release is on, then you do two and three normally, rank the bar, put the weight releases back on, do rep four with the weight releases, five and six, or with eight. You've doubled the volume of eccentric training. So build it up progressively, because the last thing you want is athletes coming back in, telling you how much they're aching the next day, turning around to the coach saying that they're in bits, turning around to the medical staff, because they won't want you doing that type of training again. But it can be really beneficial. And the few studies that are out there, that there's uh, one by Melissa Harden where she used a control group, some trained athletes and some very well-trained athletes. It was some uh, um, GB cyclists and they showed within a four-week period substantial improvements in uh, maximum and rapid force production from um, doing that type of training using an eccentric leg press. Now, there is an issue with that. No one else has access to that eccentric leg press apart from British cycling. But hey, um, it worked. It shows you know that the theory holds true. Um, there's a couple of studies by Simon Walker, which I think both Rob Newton, Kijo Hakkinen, and Greg Haff were part of that research group at that point, um, looking at different types of eccentric training in a more applied environment, more eco ecologically valid, so not just isolated single joint eccentric training and again they've shown big in increases in a short duration but again with a relatively conservative um, loading paradigm that they've used and I think that's the key thing is you have to do a small amount because we know it will create some muscle damage so be conservative with it a lot of the research um, researchers will say we need to get this stimulus we need to make sure it has a positive effect but, you know, if you turn around, you look at some of the early studies on Nordics where they were doing, you know, 50 plus repetitions in a week. Not a chance. Or, you know, sets of 10. I know after three, my subsequent reps are pretty poor because it feels like everything's going to cramp up. And we now know that those lower volumes are maybe not quite as effective, but you get much better adherence. So longer term, they will be more effective. So you've really got to be conservative with how you apply that, that eccentric load. There's lots of different ways to do it. Um, but there are some pretty simple and easy to apply um, options in, in a normal setting if you haven't got specialist equipment. And the weight releases, you know, you can buy those for probably £200, or if you know anybody that's good with metal work, they can probably make some for you. Superb. Paul, thank you very much. We're coming on to an hour, which is what I promised you. So I'm just going to ask you where people can get more information on you, research to involved with, projects that you're going on. Where's the best place? Uh, Probably ResearchGate's the easiest place to find what research has been published. Um, if they want to contact me, they can find me on um, Twitter. Um, Paul Comfort nineteen seventy five gives away my age, <laughs> um, and the same on say, I think it's exactly the same on Instagram. Uh, if anybody's got any burning questions, they can always email me. Uh, my email address is p.comfort at salford.ac.uk. Um, but yeah, always happy to try and answer questions. Um, as and when I can and if I don't know the answer I'll be honest and say no idea go to this person or I've got a general idea but go and speak to somebody else they're much more knowledgeable than me amazing thank you Paul sorry it's taken so long to get you on but I think it was definitely worth it so much in that last hour so thank you very much and uh, have a good rest of the day no problem at all brilliant thanks cheers Paul. mate 
thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Paul for giving up his time. Like you said right at the start, and like I say every single week, it's taken me so long to get Paul on this episode, but I really appreciate his time. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs, and of course, Satanta College for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. So keep checking out the Pace Performance Podcast in the coming weeks. We have a nice little back-to-back episode with Franco Impelazeri and Nicole Van Dyke discussing Nordic. So not on the same episode, but back-to-back, which is a really interesting two-parter. So thanks a lot for tuning in, and I will chat to you next week.